introduce Nigel to us. Thank you, mate. Mark, thanks very much. I'm standing in for David Alton, um, Lord Alton, who sends his apologies. He's been detained in Liverpool, and otherwise he would be chairing, um, but instead that you've got me. Um, however, I think it's probably, I, I felt I had to completely put my hands up and agree to do it, because um, I think I suggested this in the first place, and so, um, so the very least I could do was turn out and hear. And I suggested it because I thought it might be interesting um, for those of us who come at these issues from a Christian perspective to have a space where someone could simply reflect on us on, on what, um, what Christian ethics have traditionally taught um, in this area. And we could have nobody better place to do that um, than our speaker today, Nigel Bigger. Um, Nigel is the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. And he's probably the first thing I'm sure that, that um, attracted him um, to Mark, apart from that they've known each other for quite a while, was his 2004 book, Aiming to Kill, The Ethics of Suicide and Euthanasia. And he's written a many, many books, as you will imagine, since. He, he moved his way around from having been chaplain and fellow at Oriel College, and went on to take on the chair in theology at the University of Leeds, moved over to be chair of theology and ethics at uh, Trinity College Dublin, um, one of my favourite um, buildings. It must have been a wonderful place to work. And then came back, um, came back to Oxford. Um, his, his most recent book is called In Defence of War, um, just out in um, 2013, which is looking at the just war theory, but has written a whole range of things ever since, including the incredibly general and ambitious Behaving in Public, How to, Christ how to Do Christian Ethics. So I'm very hopeful. Mark has asked, um, I gave Nigel a brief of speaking um, for about 40 minutes, which is a long time, even by our chamber standards. So um, he is, totally understands that colleagues may have to leave and come back, and that's absolutely fine. The aim is not to tell us what to think, but simply to set out what the main arguments are, to reflect on them theologically, and then to support us in having a conversation that may be helpful to us in moving on um, towards dealing with the private member's bill that's coming down the track. So if you need to go or come back, that's great. I hope that you won't want to because you'd be so enthralled um, that, the, that even leaving just seems totally unimaginable. So Nigel, over to you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I think this, this mic is working. Is it? You, you can hear me at the back? Uh, good. Um, so uh, you have a handout in front of you. Uh, I do apologise for the, for the point .11 font. It's slightly small type. Uh, but I, I wanted to cram it all in on, on uh, two sides of A4. Um, so if you can't read it now, maybe you can take a uh, um, magnifying, magnifying glass and, <laughs> and read it later. Um, the way I'm going to approach this is, is as follows. I, I, I'm going to um, comment on the bill and the issues it raises, first of all, and then at the end uh, I, I will bring to the surface the, the Christian elements in what I've just said. To put my cards on the table, I am a professor of, of theology, I am an Anglican priest. I'm, I'm in disguise on, on this occasion. Um, uh, I also oppose the bill. Right? So those are my cards on the table. Uh, nevertheless, um, I'm obliged to be fair and charitable to my opponents. And so if you stop me being unfair or uncharitable, uh, you can correct me. Uh, I, will, uh, I will try and be as, as fair and charitable as I can because I, 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 I've no doubt whatsoever about the, the good intentions of those behind a change in the law uh, I recognise the cases whose suffering they're trying to relieve are, are dire cases uh, there's no doubt about that I just disagree about the prudence of a change in the law uh, so um, you can follow what I'm saying uh, via the handout that uh, um, records all the main points I'll make So first of all, I'm going to um, explain where the law on assisted suicide now stands for those of you who um, um, 
aren't entirely sure. Um, you probably know that since the Suicide Act of 1961, uh, suicide has not been a crime in this country. Um, how to interpret uh, that change in the law? Um, one way to interpret it is to say uh, that the law wasn't changed, that suicide was not decriminalised uh, because Parliament then decided that suicide was a matter of public indifference. In other words, we don't care whether people commit suicide or not. That wasn't the reason for a change in the law. The law was changed because, I believe, uh, parliamentarians recognised that the appropriate response to a failed attempt to commit suicide is not punishment, but therapy. So it was decriminalised. But the, the, the fact that um, Parliament decided uh, to uh, continue to regard uh, assistance in suicide as a crime was a sign that Parliament still wanted to discourage suicide. That's how I understand what might appear to be the discrepancy in the law. Suicide is not a crime, but assistance suicide is. The law against assistance in suicide expresses and confirms the social norm that our usual response to neighbours in severe distress should not be to help them kill themselves. Now, in recent years, uh, again, as you will probably know, the most significant legal development has been that while assistance in suicide remains a crime, uh, in 2010, the then Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer, published a set of criteria by which he and his successors uh, determine whether or not it is in the public interest to prosecute a case of assistance in suicide. And among the features of cases that would disincline the DPP to prosecute are the following. The suspect's motivation uh, was wholly compassionate. The suspect had sought to dissuade the victim and uh, his assistance was both reluctant and minor. Uh, what this new arrangement makes clear is that instances, certain instances of the crime of assisted suicide that bear these features should not be prosecuted. As I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, but as I, as I understand it, uh, the criminal law is designed to prohibit certain kinds of action which generally injure individuals or society. From time to time, however, there do arise exceptional instances of these kinds that don't quite fit the pattern or the paradigm. So, for example, the, the, the paradigm, the, um, um, the classic case of assistance in suicide that the law wants to discourage is the malevolent exploitation of a vulnerable person's distress that kind of assistance in suicide we want to discourage. Unusual cases where assistance in suicide is given reluctantly uh, upon their request to someone in extremely unfortunate circumstances, the kind of circumstances that naturally attract our sympathy, those cases don't quite fit the paradigm. So the current legal arrangement, whereby assistance in suicide remains a crime, but should it meet certain public criteria, will not be prosecuted, is one way, it's one way, whereby the law can accommodate unusual cases, while continuing generally to discourage assistance in suicide and therefore suicide itself. So that's how I understand 
the current state of affairs legally and its, its rationale. So on to um, my second uh, uh, main topic, uh, Lord Falconer's Commission and the Assisted Dying Bill. Uh, late in 2011 saw the uh, publication of the report by the Demos Commission on Assisted Dying, which Lord Falconer chaired and which was part funded by Terry Pratchett and facilitated by Dignity and Dying. Some of the, of the thinking of this report, although as we shall see not all of it, is reflected in the bill currently before uh, this House. First of all, um, a comment on terminology. Uh, the Commission, like the bill, talks about assisted dying. This is, I think, a misnomer. It has, it, it's, a, it's a misnomer which has the effect of obscuring what we're actually talking about. We're not talking about palliative care. We are talking about assisting someone to kill themselves. Assisted suicide. Now, we might conclude, we might conclude that in certain kinds of case, assistance in suicide is morally and legally okay. I still think we need to be clear about what it is we're approving of. We're, talk we're talking about suicide here, not uh, palliative care. Uh, we need to be clear because unless we think that suicide and assistance in suicide is generally a matter of social or public indifference, we have to consider how we can permit them in these cases without thereby weakening the general uh, social norm against suicide. So whatever its intention, and I don't know what the intention was, the title, Assisted Dying, is a misnomer that has the effect of hiding an important issue from view. That's enough about, about terminology. Uh, what complaints against the current legal arrangement does the Falconer Commission make? Um, as I read them, the report's most cogent objections are these, and there are three of them, and listed on your handout there. First, because assisted suicide remains a crime, those who would commit suicide must either travel to Switzerland or risk an amateur and perhaps botched attempt. So that, that's the first unsatisfactory feature of the current arrangement according to the Falconer Commission. Second, under current arrangements, those who assist in suicide have to endure the threat of prosecution. And third, arrangements involve only checks after the fact of suicide not safeguards against abuse beforehand. So those are the three unsatisfactory features of the current arrangements. Therefore, uh, Lord Falconer's report and the present bill recommend that assisted suicide be made legal where the suicide is terminally ill and his or her choice is voluntary and informed. However, uh, before assisted suicide is made legal, uh, Lord Falconer's report stipulates some essential conditions that have to be fulfilled. These include, first, the institution of robust and carefully applied safeguards to ensure that the choice of an assisted death could never become an obligation and that a person could not experience pressure from another person to choose an assisted death without the abuse being detected. Page 300 of the report. Second, it stipulates the provision of the best end of care of life available, page 24, 
including compassionate staff with time to investigate fully the circumstances and motivations of any person seeking an assisted death and the potential for alternative options for treatment and care. Page 299. Now, whatever in uh, his commission's report that has shaped Lord Falconer's assisted dying bill, it doesn't include these stipulations, as I'll argue shortly. So now, um, 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 stage three, focusing on the bill itself. Uh, what should we make of it? What do I think we should make of it? Or do I make of it, at least? You must decide for yourselves what you want to make of it. Well, first, I note that legality, uh, legal assisted suicide, would be restricted to cases of the terminally ill. It would remain illegal to assist in the suicide of the chronically ill, the severely handicapped and the bereaved. What this means is that the bill presently before the House would make no difference whatsoever to most of the cases recently publicised by the media, not to Alzheimer's patients like Terry Pratchett or multiple sclerosis sufferers <coughs> such as Debbie Purdy or quadriplegics like Daniel James or those subject to, to locked-in syndrome like Tony Nicholson or those unwilling to endure bereavement, like Sir Edward Downes. <coughs> what are the reasons for restricting eligibility to the terminally ill? First, the need to avoid implying that a disabled life isn't worth living. And secondly, the fact that unbearable suffering is too subjective a criterion for doctors to assess. Now, these seem to me to be good reasons good reasons for restricting eligibility to the terminally ill. I'd strengthen the last one by saying that if unbearable suffering or individual autonomy were substituted for the criterion of terminal illness, there would be no rational way of preventing assisted suicide on demand and excluding the bereaved, the jilted, the philosophically gloomy and the adolescently morbid or even those serving lifelong sentences in prison. I mentioned this last uh, because some years ago when I published a letter in the Times on this subject, I got a, um, a letter from one of Her Majesty's prisons from a lifelong prisoner saying that uh, if it became legal to assist in the suicide of the unbearably suffering, he and plenty of his inmates would be first in the queue. So the point is that the criterion of unbearable suffering is too, is, too, is too elastic. That's one reason for restricting eligibility to the terminally ill. So if we were going to legalise assistance in suicide, then confining it to the cases of, of the terminally ill would be prudent. But it seems to me this is a very fragile restriction, and I do doubt whether it could be maintained very long. So restricting it to the terminally ill... It's prudent, but it's fragile. Why do I think it's fragile? I think it's fragile because some of the shakers and movers in the campaign to legalise assistance in suicide in cases of terminal illness have made it quite clear that they regard this merely as a first politically tactful step. Once legality has been extended to assistance in suicide for the terminally ill, they will then start to lobby for the restriction to be progressively relaxed and eventually for an extension of legality from assistance in suicide to voluntary euthanasia. 
Now, I, I, I mean, I can't possibly speak for all, all of those who support a change in the law, um, um, but I have sat 10 feet away from Lord Joffe uh, when he said what I've just reported to you. Um, and I've not heard dignity in dying um, uh, committing themselves to resting with Lord Falconer's current proposed arrangements. And certainly its sister organization in the, in the Netherlands is now clamoring for the extension of voluntary euthanasia beyond the terminally ill, not only to those suffering unbearably, but also to those who are, quote, tired of life. In other words, particularly elderly people who are not suffering from any particular illness, but who, just, who, who are lonely and, and uh, wander in their lives. So, so while, the, while the restriction of legality to the terminally ill is more prudent, I agree, it's more prudent than some of the alternatives, I don't think it'll survive very long. So that's, that's my first uh, major comment on, on, on the bill. And before I move to, to my second comment, here's, here's a, a rather long footnote, and it's on Oregon. Oregon. My reasons for doubting that assisted suicide in this country would be long confined to the terminally ill are the same reasons why I think that reassuring appeals to the state of, of affairs in Oregon uh, are misleading. Or at least, um, Oregon is not the model we are likely to follow. Uh, since 1997, uh, physician-assisted suicide for the terminally ill has been legal in the state of Oregon and the USA. And from what, I, what I've been told there has been no significant pressure to relax the terms and conditions or to extend legalization to voluntary euthanasia. In other words, uh, Oregon offers an example of legal stability rather than of a legal slippery slope. To, so, so to someone in my position as an opponent of legalization, Oregon is certainly an awkward case because uh, my concern is about legal slippage. And in Oregon, the law seems to have been stable. So that, that's, all good, that's all good for me. I confess that. However, um, elsewhere, uh, the story is different. Uh, in the Netherlands, where the requirement is not terminal illness but unbearable suffering, as I've just mentioned, controversy continues to rage over who decides what's unbearable and about whether unbearable suffering should, ex should include existential and psychological suffering as well as physical and indeed, as I've just said, whether it should include those who are merely tired of life and not suffering from any particular illness. And similar debates are being had in Belgium and Switzerland. Uh, last year, for example, a Brussels doctor acceded to a request for a lethal injection by a 44-year-old whose sex change operation to become a man had been botched. The same doctor had also overseen the euthanasia of, 40, of a 45-year-old congenitally deaf twins who feared they were going blind. And last month in Switzerland, the, the Swiss Medical Association criticized the move, by the, the, the legal move by the organization Exit to extend its assistance in suicide to elderly people who are not terminally ill, but who are suffering from old age. So, so the question is, well, one question is, uh, which model is England likely to follow, Oregon or Northwest Europe? Uh, given Lord Joffe's remarks, 
Given the lack of any public commitment on the part of dignity in dying to, to oppose any subsequent relaxation of the terms and conditions of the Falconer legislation, and given the wide range of cases of non-terminally ill Britons availing themselves of the suicidal services of Dignitas, which have received sympathetic attention in the media, and given also, I think, uh, a greater cultural affinity between this country and Northwest Europe than with Oregon, uh, and if you want me to explain what I think of it is, I, I will, but given all those factors, it seems to me that there are good reasons to doubt that if we start with the Oregon model, that's where we'll stop. Okay, so that, that's a footnote on Oregon. Um, because certainly the, the supporters of uh, a change in the law uh, do tend at the moment to refer us to the, to the Oregon model. My second comment on the assisted dying bill is this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Commission, the Falconer Commission, prescribes as essential conditions of legalizing assistance in suicide, uh, the, the institution of robust and carefully applied safeguards against undue influence by others and indirect societal pressures. Uh, these safeguards should involve optimal end-of-life care, including staff with time on their hands to conduct thorough investigations of the motivations of those seeking assistance to kill themselves. Now, on the one hand, uh, I applaud the requirements. They are humane and prudent. On the other hand, if they're deemed essential, then legalizing assistance in suicide will not be prudent for many, many years to come, if ever. Now, why do I say this? Many vulnerable people in this country live, make their choices, exercise their autonomy in a hostile environment. In 2008, before the full implications of the current financial and economic crisis had dawned on us, uh, Julia Neuberger, writing in her book about the treatment of the elderly, not dead yet, reported that at any one time in the UK, uh, 500,000 elderly people are being abused, two-thirds of them at home by someone in a position of trust. Judging by the um, current homepage, or at least the homepage of... <coughs> action on elder abuse uh, before Christmas, uh, which cites the same data, I take it nothing much has changed. Moreover, in 2009, the Mid-Staffordshire Healthcare Trust scandal revealed that abuse of vulnerable patients is not limited to amateurs, but extends to healthcare professionals sometimes. Even if we had all the healthcare resources we could dream of, I don't believe there are any practical ways of identifying with sufficient certainty autonomous choices formed indirectly and subtly in a context of abuse. This is not least because an individual's autonomy is bound to be informed by her or his social context. And here I quote from a, um, a French uh, um, expert on these matters, Emmanuel Hirsch, who says... In the field of choice between life and death, resort to the notion of individual autonomy is in part an illusion. A patient whose physical and mental faculties are deteriorating may truly want to die, but this desire is not the fruit of his freedom alone. It may be, and often is, the translation of the attitude of those around him, if not of society as a whole, which no longer believes in the value of his life, 
and signals this to him in all sorts of ways. Here we have a supreme paradox. Someone is cast out of the land of the living and then thinks that he, personally, wants to die. We don't have the best end-of-life care available. Health care uh, staff don't have time to spare, and some instances, at least, of the nursing profession have recently been found wanting in compassion. That's now. Even if optimal end-of-life care were simply a matter of money, which it isn't, there's no reason to expect dramatic improvement in this country for years to come, maybe decades, maybe longer. So the implication of the conditions laid down by Lord Falconer's own report is that assistance in suicide should not be made legal in the foreseeable future and that therefore Lord Falconer's bill is imprudent. Um, uh, about a year and a half ago I was uh, at a debate with Lord Falconer at King's College London in late, 2000, 2000, in late 2012 um, and uh, I made this point to him, um, and if my memory serves me correctly, his response was to deny that his report says what I claim. Um, if you follow him in thinking that, all I can invite you to do is to read pages 24 and 299. My third and final response to the, to the bill is this. Um, it proposes to extend legality to assistance in suicide in cases of the terminally ill. At the same time, it recommends that those who assist suicide in cases of the chronically ill or seriously disabled should continue to be treated according to the published guidelines of the DPP. To this, my question is, if those guidelines are good enough for those who are not dying, why are they not good enough for those who are? Section 4. Um, my conclusion then is that on balance we should stick with the current arrangements. But if that's my conclusion, how do I respond directly to the Falconer's report main objections to the current <coughs> arrangements? And you'll remember there were three main objections. Let me just go through each of them in turn and say how I'd respond to them. First, take the issue of having to travel abroad or risk amateur suicide. In the vast majority of cases, palliative medicine and care are sufficient to ease the physical suffering of patients. And in extreme cases, palliative sedation can render suffering patients unconscious, if that's necessary. I don't think it is the responsibility of healthcare professionals to, to relieve us of non-physical existential suffering. And judging by anecdotal reports from the Netherlands, it seems that Dutch doctors are increasingly of that view. And those for whom relief from physical suffering is not enough, I think must be uh, asked to take responsibility for the costs or risks they incur in trying to end their non-physical distress. Second, the issue of the threat of prosecution. For sure, this is a burden on those who currently assist in suicide. The police have to investigate, and those investigated have to wait for their conclusions. Why? 
Well, because some deliberate killings are wrongful, and the authorities have to be allowed to find out what kind this instance is. Insofar as the assistance given was suitably reluctant and well-intentioned, it is unfortunate, and it's somewhat tragic, that the assistant must suffer fear of prosecution. But some suffering may be tragically necessary, or at least unavoidable. The alternative that the assisted dying bill proposes is a legal system for discriminating between legal and, and illegal assistance in suicide, <coughs> with a view to permitting it in certain cases. Now, this does have the benefit of giving an assistant relief of the fear of prosecution in advance of the Act, <coughs> provided that the case meets the criteria. But, of course, until it becomes clear that the case does meet the criteria, a would-be assistant is still going to have to suffer the anxiety of uncertainty, and so is the would-be suicide. Now, maybe that suffering would be, would be less than that of the after-the-fact fear of prosecution, but is it so much less as to justify a risk-laden change in the law. So on that issue, I think there are, there are pros and cons either way. And it's not clear to me that the, the quantity of anxiety suffered by those involved is going to be uh, dramatically uh, uh, in, uh, um, relieved uh, by changing the law. Third and finally comes the complaint that current arrangements involve checks only after suicide and no prospective safeguards against abuse beforehand. And I have to confess, I don't quite understand this, uh, this objection. Um, but uh, uh, insofar as I understand it, here, here goes. Um, on the one hand, the current arrangements surely do provide prospective safeguards against abuse. After all, they make assistance in suicide illegal and subject to the threat of prosecution and maybe punishment. Uh, certainly, the current arrangement... Uh, fails to prevent all law-breaking, including some cases of malevolent abuse, but then so will any system, including Lord Falconer's. Uh, there is no foolproof set of legal arrangements available. Our very need of law implies that human beings are inclined to do what it prohibits. And the fact that humans are finite creatures means that even well-intentioned law enforcers will not succeed always and everywhere. So no feasible safeguard will amount to a guarantee. Okay, now is the point where I, I, I start to be specifically Christian. Uh, this, this is the, the fifth section. Um, so what I'm going to do now is just, just talk a bit generally about uh, um, um, if you aren't a Christian, why on earth you should pay attention to what I've said as a Christian. Um, and then I'll lift up the, the, um, the elements of the argument I've given that, that are shaped by my Christian beliefs. Uh, but first of all, um, why should it be proper uh, for Christians in Parliament to take their Christian reasons into a public debate? My first point is that the members, uh, members of the British public uh, do not divide neatly into a rational secular majority on the one hand uh, and an irrational religious minority on the other. Um, uh, my preferred way of putting this in a nutshell is that Britain is a plural society, it's not a secular one. Uh, according to the, um, the British Social Attitudes Survey of 2010, publishing data from 2008, uh, we in Britain uh, divide in, into three roughly comparable blocks. About a third of us are religious, 
about a third of us are non-religious and about a third of us are fuzzy faithful. Uh, And of the non-religious, on a 14-point scale of religiosity, only about 3% score zero. In other words, even among the non-religious, there's a fair bit of sympathy for, for religion. So we're a really mixed up bunch, we British. Um, um, some of us believe a lot, some of us believe not at all, most of us believe a bit or don't believe a bit too. We're not secular, we're plural. Second, there's no view from nowhere. There's no neutral position. Everyone speaks from a particular position, be it Christian, be it Jewish, be it Muslim, be it Hindu, be it Aristotelian, be it Kantian, be it Hobbesian, be it Marxist, be it Nietzschean. Right? So, so we don't have peculiar religious views over here and a kind of unified secular rationality here. Uh, there are lots of controversies on both sides. Not all Christians believe the same thing. Not all, not all atheist humanists believe the same thing either. Okay. What this means is that if Christians sometimes baffle others by referring to weird things like God or the afterlife, um, if that's true, it's also true that Hobbesians will baffle Kantians with their degree- degrading view of human motivation. Kantians, uh, Hobbesians tell us that the only thing that motivates us basically is the fear of pain and the fear of death. Kantians will find that rather degrading. Um, equally, Marxists will find libertarians naive in their view of, of individual liberty. So, it, uh, in other words, moments of bafflement in public conversation are normal. Um, religious believers are not alone in generating them, and we all know how to push dialogue forward in spite of them. Okay? So, you say something weird to me, I'll say that's weird, and then we'll look for something we can agree on or talk about. That, that's normal. So what this means is, I think, that uh, in public deliberation, Christians, like anyone else, should speak their own mind, uh, negotiate their way around moments of bafflement, like everyone else, and identify and develop points of overlap with other people. So that's my second point. And my third is this. There probably will be moments of overlap. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm also a more or less rational human being. Uh, I'm capable of talking with atheists. I'm even capable of enjoying conversation with atheists. And we do find some things in common. Okay? Uh, And substitute for Christian, any particular position, we normally find that's the case. Um, We do find moments of overlap. uh, Why is that? Well, it's partly because Christianity, for example, has always engaged with, borrowed from, and adapted to other traditions. Uh, So Christian reasons won't be absolutely foreign to all non-Christians. Very little of Christianity makes sense without reference to Judaism. Um, um, Like Christians, Jews and Muslims are both monotheists. And depending on what kind of Christian they're talking with, Aristotelians and Kantians and even Marxists will find a lot to agree with. So here's the third point. What is genuinely and characteristically Christian need not be exclusively so. It depends what we're talking about, and depends who we're talking to. Uh, have me talk to an Aztec or a Nazi, probably we have very little in common. Have me talk to, to uh, an atheist humanist, we have a lot in common. 
It depends on who we're talking to and what we're talking about. So the three points here is uh, the British public isn't, isn't, isn't secular, it's plural. In public discussion, everyone should speak their minds and negotiate. And what is characteristically Christian uh, needn't be exclusively so. Finally, uh, let me bring to the surface um, what's Christian about what I've said so far. Buried in what I've said uh, is a belief that there is such a thing as uh, moral reality. There's objective moral reality. Uh, there are such things as uh, objective uh, human goods or values. Uh, why this is relevant, I'll make clear in my second point. But just to say here uh, that um, this is a position that, that, that I think any monotheist is bound to take, that, that part, of, part of the point of saying that God is creator, that there is one God who is creator, is to say that, that the, the world we live in is coherent, not just physically, but morally. It's coherent. One God the reality is morally coherent. Um, after two generations in which moral philosophers have been dominated by the view that there are no objective moral, moral uh, uh, values, uh, as exemplified, for example, in the uh, preference utilitarianism of Peter, of Peter Singer, uh, I just point out that in the last two years, uh, two of our most eminent atheist uh, moral philosophers, Derek Parfit, and Thomas Nagel have recently taken to arguing that there is indeed reason to believe in objective moral values. Okay. That's part of the, uh, uh, the belief in, in one God, one creator God, generates a belief in a given moral objective order. <coughs> Those who believe in a given moral reality, like Christians and others, think that human beings flourish not simply by realizing their individual preferences, but primarily investing their lives in things that are objectively good. Right? So part of what's going on here is individual freedom and liberty and autonomy is not the final word. Human flourishing consists mainly in investing ourselves in what is really valuable. Justice, friendship, loyalty, the social good. So that paradoxically, we save our lives, we fulfill our lives by spending them in the service of others. Uh, um, for example, Jesus. Third point, uh, there's no doubt, therefore, that notwithstanding its excessive cultural prominence, compassion for the vulnerable is a Christian virtue. That is a Christian virtue. As Paul Badham, another Christian theologian who disagrees with me on, on uh, the legalization of assisted suicide. If you look at Paul, he emphasizes it very greatly. Of course, compassion is a Christian virtue. Um, and he's thinking of compassion for the, 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 um, the dreadful cases that um, move people to want the law to be changed. To which I respond, well, yes, compassion is a Christian virtue, but so is prudence. Prudence is a Christian virtue too. And it needs to qualify our compassion. And the heart of my argument against uh, Lord Falconer's bill is that, while deeply well-meaning, and I don't doubt that for a moment, it is imprudent. Because in seeking to engineer a perfect legal solution to the undoubtedly hard cases of a few dozen or a few hundred fellow citizens, 
the bill risks weakening the general social taboo against suicide and the general social norm to support those in adversity to carry on living. And thereby it puts at risk a much larger number of vulnerable patients. So the point here is here, compassion needs to be uh, um, not simply directed at the very extreme cases, but at the much wider range of vulnerable patients. We need to be um, um, circumspect with our compassion. Finally, and I think I've just about made it within 45 minutes, um, I'm a Christian much influenced by Augustine, by Augustine. And as an Augustinian Christian, uh, I think of um, human history as uh, suspended or, or buoyed up on the one hand by signs of hope, uh, most especially the resurrection of Jesus, the hope uh, that uh, death, <laughs> and particularly the, the death of the innocent, the murder of the innocent, will not be the final word. So that's on the one hand, signs of hope. But on the other hand, um, human history stands between that point and perfection. That's to say, we, we're nowhere near perfection. We live in an age that is full of ambiguity, of tragedy, of compromise. And incidentally, for those of you who like these etymological things, um, the word secular originally referred to this age, the seculum, the seculum, the age of compromise. So in Augustine's uh, use, the word secular means that which relates to the age of compromise and ambiguity, not the age of non-religion. So therefore, I, I'm generally uh, doubtful of, of anything that purports to be a perfect solution. Every practical solution involves inconsistencies, it trails loose ends, it entails unintended consequences. Every uh, purported solution involves risks. None can guarantee the prevention of abuse or neglect. And therefore, any proposal that purports to be perfect shouldn't be trusted. So here lies my most basic objection to Lord Falconer's current bill as to Lord Joffe's before him, that it seems to me to be the, uh, the dummy, the spokesperson of the contemporary spirit which infects so much public and professional life by deluding us into thinking that failures of human finitude and weakness and malice can be secured against, can be guaranteed against, by institutional and procedural and legal reform. Now, my point is not, I, I'm quite kind of Burkean on this, my point is not that all change is bad. My point is not that things can't, can't be improved upon. Uh, my point is that improvements very often entail undesired side effects. That in deciding upon improvements, therefore, we ought to be much franker than we tend to be about those side effects. And that when we are franker about them, we might be led to wonder just how improving, all things considered, the proposed improvement really is. I get to stop talking and you can get to react.